Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 78 of Carroll Pop. Our guest this week is singer-songwriter Michael McDermott, who is putting his formidable talent front and center in a career that has spanned more than 30 years. He's in a good place now and won the 2022 Tenko Award in Italy for his contributions to songwriting. When you hear what it took to get here, you may consider it a miracle. I first knew of Michael McDermott in the early 90s when I lived in Chicago's Lakeview neighborhood around the corner from 620 West Surf. That not only was Michael McDermott's address, but also the title of his much-heralded 1991 album for Irving Azoff's Giant Records. Don Gaiman, who previously worked with John Mellencamp and R.E.M., produced 620 West Surf. The single, A Wall I Must Climb, went into MTV rotation and hit the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. McDermott also appeared in the pages of Rolling Stone and the New York Times. Things were moving so fast, I couldn't comprehend it. I was first, maybe I was last. In confusion had descended, I was amazed by what had transcended. Doubt is all I must find. This was heady stuff for a young musician who had grown up in the Chicago suburb of Orland Park and used to say at bedtime, make me your poet, make me your singer. As he told me for a Chicago Tribune profile years later, I'd already exceeded my expectations. My dreams had already come true, and it's a weird thing when that happens at 22, because where do you go from there? In McDermott's case, he fell into the trappings of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, all while his career didn't scale the predicted heights. 620 West Surf sold below expectations. A follow-up album recorded in Seattle wasn't released. His next album that was released, 1993's Gethsemane, received little label support and fared worse commercially. Though if you lived in Chicago, you probably heard Just West of Eden on WXRT. Just West, just West of Eden, from Chicago to that album wowed novelist Stephen King, who quoted the lyrics from the song Lantern in his novel Insomnia and took McDermott to a Cubs game. In the liner notes to McDermott's self-titled third album, King wrote, My first listen to Gethsemane is one of the great events of my life as a rock music fan. It wasn't so much the record itself, good as it was, as the man on the record. Not since I first heard Bruce Springsteen singing Rosalita had I heard someone who excited me so much as a listener, who turned my dial so high, who just made me feel so fucking happy to have ears. But King's endorsement didn't make that third album a hit either, and McDermott continued down a deep, dark spiral of addiction and reckless behavior. Brian Koppelman, who had signed McDermott to Giant and became a close friend, co-wrote the 1998 poker movie Rounders with David Levine. They named both lead characters after their friend, whose full name was Michael McDermott Murphy. Matt Damon played Mike McDermott, while Edward Norton played the more troubled Lester Worm Murphy, who had more than a bit in common with the self-destructive musician. McDermott says he was freebasing in the studio while recording his indie fourth album, 1999's Bourbon Blue, but he continued making music and in some parallel universe, big chorus songs such as Unemployed and Hit Me Back might have been hits. trip to Italy proved life-changing for McDermott. So was his marriage to musician Heather Horton and the birth of their daughter, whose name came from McDermott's epic song, The Idler, The Prophet, and A Girl Called Rain. Rain, he said, again, how you got your 
When I interviewed him in 2011, McDermott told me he had kicked drugs and was dedicated himself to his new family. But as he details here, he had more bottoming out to do. He has been sober since 2014. If you've heard his songs, you won't be surprised that McDermott is a tremendous storyteller. His memoir from last year, Scars from Another Life, is harrowing, self-lacerating, inspiring, and very entertaining. Some stories, such as one involving a legendary folk musician, leave your jaw hanging open. He offers more tuneful introspection on a strong album from last year, St. Paul's Boulevard. McDermott is in a much better place now than he was for much of his career. He's got great energy and perspective, and his experiences have lent him wisdom without taking away his senses of humor and the absurd. When you listen to Michael McDermott talk here, you learn a lot, not just about music, but also life. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Michael McDermott. You know Jim Crow, please if you don't know, it's not too hard to see that the president's a criminal. Iron eyes, Cody, wipe away your tears. What in the world is happening? The first one I did was uh, a guy you opened for, uh, Richard Thompson. Ooh. And uh, so anyway, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, did you, were you recently in Italy to, to get that, um, that the Tenko, Tenko award? award? Yeah, it was in October. And uh, yeah, that was a very strange and surreal experience. You know, like I thought when I landed, they'd tell me, well, the part of the deal is you have to clean up the highways uh, or yeah. something, you know, like it'd be some kind of, there'd be some kind of caveat to it, but it was amazing. And uh, you know, but I try to keep my my feet steady about that because I know like, yeah, as cool as this is, it's today, tomorrow, I'm, you know, it's not going to be a game changer. It's not like suddenly I'm George Clooney over there, um, but it's a really nice thing to to remember, you know. I'm sure when you were growing up, you know, in Orland Park and playing your guitar, you thought someday I'm going to be an Italian superstar. <laughs> Yes, I did. No, I mean, there, there are worse places you could be a superstar. You know, you could be a superstar in a place you really don't want to go to, but like having a reason to like be loved in Italy is pretty great. I know. Isn't it that joke? Like it's a joke amongst like rock bands. And it was even a joke in that movie singles. Remember they said we're huge in Scandinavia, you know, whatever. It's like right. you're huge somewhere else. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's a little bit like that, you know, but it's Italy, so it's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, there's I mean, way it's the there. heart of culture, you know? It's like you and Ricardo Muti, you know? It's great. I mean, I guess Ireland would be kind of somehow better just because of my <laughs> thing. But uh, but that's the best place you could be. Like, But the no. crossover Irish-Italian thing is pretty cool, too. So. It is. It is. They, they love Irish people there, too, which is fun. So, so I did a big profile of you for the Tribune in June 2011. Yes. And, and it's kind of like, that was like in the transition album part of your life, I think. Yes. Because you, because you, on one hand, you were, you were married to Heather. You'd had Willie Rain. Yes. Uh, I think she was like 11 months old at that yeah, point or something young. like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, you told me like you hadn't done drugs since you, uh, since you got married, but you also hadn't, you know, completely sobered up like you would right. a few years later. Right. Like where, where were you at that point? And then what happened after that? So that was 2011. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't get sober until 2014. Really? I mean, I, I told people, I think on some delusional level, I thought I was better 
you know, I mean, like every alcoholic thinks he's getting better. Like I'm better now. Like I only drink on Wednesdays or, you know, I only free base on the weekends. Um, so that's somehow like a better, you know, it's a step in the right direction. So you, at that point, a drowning man will take any kind of like hope. And so, yeah, so, um, but I made a really good record, I think. Yeah. 2012. Um, and yeah, like drugs had kind of, you know, run its course, but I was still, you know, I thought I was moving in the right direction. I guess I was, but I was, it got worse from there from after we talked, it got terribly worse. And, uh, and then it fell apart in, you know, 20, I got sober in January, 2014. Right. So, uh, so it was several more years of going at it and it got, it got spiraled, it spiraled, you know, if I can say this, I was a little worried about you because on one hand you totally confronted this stuff and it was a really candid interview in which you were facing yeah. down your demons and, and also talking about, you know, how much Heather had changed your life and, you know, having rain and everything else. Um, but at the same time, there was a little bit of the, you know, I'm still drinking, not as much, but, you know, like sort of, I saw you guys at Lincoln Hall and, and it was interesting because that was also another demon for you to wrestle a wall you had to climb was that you were playing 620 West surf and Gethsemane right. at Lincoln hall. And, and like days before the show, you were like, I still haven't relearned the songs from 620 West surf because it's bringing up so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that was, you know, and yeah, I was just a self saboteur, you know, like, I mean, that's what I did. I was really good at it. And uh, so, yeah, so it, it, um, it got so bad that, you know, I was yellow and, uh, and that wasn't for years later, but yeah, things were just, when I look back on it now, it's just so funny. And, and I, I was just so dishonest with myself. I think I was delusional really. I mean, I think it wasn't even that I was knowingly willfully lying to myself, but I was just out of like, I wasn't right. You know, I was sick, you know, and that's uh, you know, it's not excusing the behavior or the deception, but it was just, I was sick. And, uh, well, that's so what, I, that's what addiction does. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, right. that's, that's why people call it a disease. I mean, it hinders your ability to assess this stuff realistically. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, in, it was all, you know, we, we can philosophically look at it like, well, it was part of the journey. And, and there's part of me that thinks I wouldn't take any of it back. I just the the amount of time uh, and I talk about that in the memoir is that I had gotten this letter from Stephen King about addiction. And uh, and, and when I was first thought I might have a problem where people started telling me, like, you, you really should watch it. And so I wrote him saying, dude, what's AA like and all that? And he wrote this letter and um, it was a beautiful letter. And, and I, you know, carried it around and um, I'd read it and cry, and, you know, after I've been up for three days and all that. But anyway, the point is, is that when I finally really got sober, I think it was 19 years later and reading it for the first time with a clear heart and a clear mind. And then, and it was beautiful. I had this epiphanous moment and then I kind of got back to the page one. Cause I was reading it, you know, like putting it behind and I got back to the first page and I was like, wow, what did, and I went, holy shit. I saw the date on it. And I was like, Oh man, man, what were you doing? You had it right here. Like you had a key to the car and you looked for it for 19 years and it was in your right. hand or you're in your back pocket. Right. Well, that's life, by the way. And, and I do want to get in, um, you know, a plug since we talked about the book, you know, Michael McDermott scars from another life. It's your memoir that came out last year. And I mean, you could tell this from your music, but you're a great storyteller. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a really good read. And it's you 
it's it's interesting because it's you sort of taking all of this stuff and putting it into a narrative. And I'm wondering, as we're talking about like our internal narratives, has your narrative about yourself changed over the last few years, just in terms of how you see yourself and having sort of confronted all this every day, nothing's real. Like I, the only difference is that I am able to look at them instead of scurry away all those things of looking back, all the mistakes I made, all the regret, all the shame, all that stuff still there. Every morning when I wake up, every time I look in that mirror, same guy, same asshole, same shameful behavior, uh, you know, lunatic. The only difference is that I go, I look at him, go, sup, as opposed to hide and pull my jacket up and, and abuse myself because I think that guy's a, an asshole. I just look at him and, you know, and it's like, I tried to stop a train. My whole, I kept standing in, on the tracks and there was a train coming at me. And I thought I got him this time. And like in a cartoon just keeps running me over. Now I just go, I step off the track. I go, all right, dude, go on, go on. Back. Right. So, you know, I just, I've surrendered to knowing that we cohabitate that guy and I, you know, and so nothing's really my own story to myself. Isn't different. I mean, I behaviorally, I do things different. I do selfless things now, which I never did. Uh, that's maybe a little difference, but I'm not that great at it. And it, and I complain about it sometimes, you know, when you help other, you know, you got to call somebody in AA who's struggling and, you know, oh, God, I got to make this, you know, and then they don't do what you tell them to do. And then, oh, you know, right. so I still, I'm still, uh, unfortunately, there hasn't been some great uh, evolution, but it's been incremental and that's all you could really, it's a, it's, it is incremental. There has been incremental, uh, changes. I mean, in the book, you're res obviously you're wrestling with the stuff and you have these phrases that pop up, like I'm such a loser. I'm a jackass. I'm this or that. There's a lot of this sort of sense of shame of looking back on it. And, you know, I really degraded myself in some way. Um, so that's all there, but there's also the, I've written all these great songs over the years i've had this you know career yes. i go i go in front of 40,000 people at wrigley field and sing the national anthem and i'm you know one of the better ones you know like i do a great job <laughs> with it and 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 that and that you sort of come out of the other side as this artist with this body of work who's getting recognized in italy like at what point does that stuff i'm saying like the sort of looking in the mirror and going hey, I'm really good at what I do. And I pursued yeah. my dreams and I made my, and I spent my life doing that instead of shoveling, you know, streets Shit. or something and, like that. When, when does that become your narrative and not the, oh, I'm ashamed of like the mistakes I made. Right. And maybe I, yeah. And, and you're right. And there is gratitude. And I go, man, we've done all right. Considering what a, what a really, I was in a boxing ring with one hand tied behind my back. I mean, imagine what I could have done with two hands, you know, what, a, what if I would have eaten good before that fight? You know, there's all that um uh for sure uh but i don't dwell on it yeah oh i'm so grateful now i can't believe i'm here i can't believe i have the life i have i really i'm just every day is just at this point on it's all gravy you know it's all it's all the bonus you know uh because this is all uh, a miracle really you know, how do you get rid of sort of that feeling of like you're saying you wake up and you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm seeing the same, the same asshole. How do you, how do you, how do you make that? So you're like, oh, you know, I, whatever I could have and should have done is like, doesn't, that's just all part of whatever that happened in the story earlier. But now it's, it's this positive thing. 
Yeah, it, it's it, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm looking for therapy from you, I think. Yeah, I know. And you got to cut the tether that that or cut cut that tether, you know, and that's what I've done. It's like get out of the way of the train because that voice, that monkey brain in your head, man, it's just it's going to tell you lies. It's going to whisper to you all day. All that chatter. I just, and, you know, through meditation, I I do. I mean, before I do anything, I get up I like the got time to make the donuts. I go out in my studio. I meditate. First thing I do. Feet hit the ground, put on a little windbreaker, go out here and do it. Because that's the only way I can combat. It's the only tools I have really to like not let that guy win. Um, so, yeah. It, and it's funny because when I was uh, a funny thing, too, is like um, I remember when I was just in the, the the throes of just, you know, the chaos and all that. I remember Brian Compton had said, dude, why don't you go do do something of service? And I was like, service. You know, what is that? You know, like I, you know, conceptually, I understood it, but like to actually do something, you know, and when you have a kid, you're, you're not the star of the show anymore, man. You know, and that was, you know, something I, you know, I put myself and my time and, 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 you know, in recovery, you do reach out to other people. You do have to do things that are selfless. And, um, that those are the things that let that voice win the guy, like, you know, I did all right to that, you know, like right. then that, that really is important. I wish I would have listened to Brian back then, you know, but, um, cause that is a weird, it's, uh, it's, it, my brain has a tough time computing. Why would I do something for someone else when I'm, when I'm hurting? How is that going to help me? But it does, you know, it's the funniest thing. Um, so that's, those are just little things I do. That guy isn't as loud anymore. The monkey guy. Like I have this weird thing where if I'm running behind and I'm running late to something and I'm driving, if someone's trying to merge into the lane in front of me, if I sort of let that person in, it's almost right. like I'm, I feel a little better. Like, okay, right. I'm not going to get there any later. And I was able to be courteous to this person. Whereas, you know, like your instinct is to be like, no, I'm in a hurry. You can right. get behind me. But see, dude, that's surrender. You know, and, and I've heard it said that, you know, uh, the people in the West, they say, oh my God, I'm not in control. Oh my God, I'm not in control. What am I going to do? I can't, I've lost control of my boss. I lost control of my kids. I've lost control. People in the East go, relax. You're not in control. Either way, you're not in control of really much of what happens to us, you know? So it's like, you can either fucking freak out or take the, take the, uh, the philosophy of just like surrender, let that guy in front of you, what's it really going to do, you know? And it helped you in that moment. And then it just re it changes your perception of things. And, and then I bet you got to the meeting and you were much calmer and cooler and whatever. How much has going through all this affected or changed how you write and perform? Yeah, it, and it, it was a concern, obviously, you know, because so much of my stuff was just so steeped in a bar life, you know. Um, but yeah, it's different. It hasn't been a problem, knock on wood. Um, but yeah, it's my, the writing's totally different. It's a uh, it's a different person. Sometimes I'll refer to bars, but I don't do it often because, you know, I've been, been there, done that. Um, so it's nice. You know, much of it is much more of, um, you know, because I was so I think I wanted it was a kind of a uh, it was self debasement. I wanted to write about it. So I thought I'd immerse myself in a culture that was, uh, uh, you know, a subterranean culture. So, but sometimes I couldn't, it would be like trying to describe the end of your nose, you know, from here, it's really hard to do. So I think 
even those characters, I have just a better perspective of it now because I'm looking at them from from over here. And I, oh, man, I would have never noticed that because I was sitting right next to him in the bar. You know, like now I can see it all. And uh, I have a better I think as a writer, I have more detail about things that, you know, subconsciously seeped in over the years. And and that I was too. I was just I have perspective now, I think, in terms of because some of those people, that's the world of people I know. So I can't get away from that. But I don't. It's not as much first person, I guess, anymore. But uh, but yeah, so uh, but the stories are all the same. And that's the funniest thing I think about writing is like I never really understood how writing about a junkie, how some businessman could relate to that, you know, but they do because really, and what, and there was a thing in the memoir I used, but somebody cut it out, an editor, but there's only really seven themes. I think that in literature that can be written about, and I can't remember what they were now, but you know, there's very <laughs> few things that any book is out of, out of that list of seven, you know? So, I mean, it's love and betrayal and, you know, so there's just very few things. So people do relate to things, songs about junkies or prostitutes, even though they don't have a personal experience with it, because we all, we're all the same story. It's all the same tapestry. Well, and, and they experience stories that they wouldn't live their something themselves too. I mean, right. there are a lot, look, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of nerdy music fans like myself who really like the Velvet Underground first album. And it's not because right. Right. I'm just like, you know, relating to, you know, oh, I remember when I was in a situation like Venus and Furs, <laughs> you know, but right. it's like, Ooh, there's this world out there that right. I don't know about. And it's being portrayed in this, you know, fascinating way. Right. I mean, you know, right. it's like you get so much empathy out of art, you know, whether it's music or film or whatever, where you, you can feel like you've been in Italy, if you've been watching, you know, the films of De Sica or Fellini or whoever. And, and, you know, obviously being there is very different, but it's how we open our, our sure. minds up. And, and that's yeah. kind of why at the same time, you know, people wanting to lock books away from you is a bad thing because, you know, we become fuller people when we're exposed to right. more walks of life and everything else. Yes. And you have a new album, which I should would plug as well, yes. which is St. Saint Paul's Boulevard, which right. sounds which is really great. You've never lost your you know ability to, to just sort of write in this kind of evocative, I don't know, poetic is a like a word people don't use that much. But obviously you, you're very poetic and it's very sort of clear eyed. Um, like In Sick of This Town, you write, uh, be careful of the past. Don't let it drag you down. There's no shame in all the things you might regret. And beware of all the ghosts that love to hang around. They're just there to remind you of what you're trying to forget. Yeah. It's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't have a question for that. I'm just like, oh, that, that's <laughs> a, I, I heard that. And I'm just like, wow, that's like, a, you know, four lines of pure wisdom right there. Uh, well, so, so St. Paul's Boulevard, to me, the template for that was Wicker Park, 1993 to 99, maybe, or something like all that took place in that part of my memory, like all those characters. And, and, uh, because that was just a very straight, you know, it's very vivid for me still. Um, because I think that's when things kind of started going South. It's like when you realize, ah, back to what we were talking about earlier, this is not the way it was supposed to go, you know, like, and I can't, and I'm wasting time now. I'm not a kid anymore. And that's a bitter pill. And my career's in the toilet and that's a bitter pill. And my relationships are, you know, falling apart and that's a bitter pill. And it was all just like, and that's a fucking heady place to be when you're, you know, kind of trying to, you know, and then trying to be something you're not doesn't help at all. So, I mean, so that's and why I chose now, because it's that thing, you know, it's that voice that, you know, I, I do spend a lot of time reflecting. And I don't know if I wrote about this in the memoir, but there's one thing, one of the few things uh, I had thought about, but I was, 
on an Argentinian, Argentinian polo horse in Long Island. And I was with David Levine's father. And I didn't know, I knew very little about horses, but I was on it. And uh, they're beautiful, stunning animals, you know, the, the high end, the high level uh, competitors and all that. And I was on it and I was on this horse and I was kind of having trouble controlling it. Mr. Levine came over and said, the horses know where you look. And it didn't, it was just some kind of bit of information he was telling me. And I thought about that. And I thought in some ways, uh, that's kind of like how life is. You know, people think of horses as dumb animals. They're not really, but they're intuitive, but that's how your life is. If you, you know, so if you're on a horse and you go like this, the horse will just suddenly start going back that way. It's really weird. And, Hmm. uh, but my life was like that, man. I spent the nineties going like this. My life just drifted that way. Just, oh, I could never get going, man. It was just always running in place. And uh, and that's kind of how I, I still think about that very seemingly inconsequential moment on a polo field in Long Island where I felt totally out of place with a bunch of very wealthy people and these all these beautiful animals. But like there was a moment in that that I thought, you know, so anytime I start getting all that, hearing those little voices back here, you know, and that whole record's about that really. It's just all those voices. And I kind of thought the horse is going to go in the direction you turn your head. So yeah. keep your eye on where you want to go. Yeah, let's go this way. That's a good metaphor. So is, yeah. is the town you're sick of then? Is that Chicago Wicker Park? It was no, that was more Orland Park. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's okay. where I am now, you know, because I came back to the house, the house I grew up in, which was never part of the dream. And, is that where you are right now? Yes. Yeah. Are you living there now? Yes. So you're not in Willow Springs anymore? No, no. Okay. Yeah. So I moved back to the house I grew up and uh, it was when my dad died, it was under, that's a long story, but like, yeah, we were able to get it back. We, we gutted it and uh, yeah, we're here now. So it's, that was never part of my, you know, the, the, the the Bel Air fantasy, you know, or or Upper West Side fantasy. So you wrote Sick of This Town about Orland Park after having moved back to Orland Park. Yes. Yeah, because okay. it's a red town in a blue state, you know, when I was at the Tribune, I got hired. Um, I did that local music column. And so yes. I was writing so I was writing about when you got signed to Giant and put out 620 West Surf. And by the way, I was living at 549 West Oakdale at the time and then and then 435 West Surf. So you were like right in my right. Neighborhood, and in fact, I took my cat to McKillop Animal yep. Hospital, which makes a couple appearances in the memoir. Like, yes, was it your grandfather was working yeah, there? My grandfather, yeah, yeah. He might have like looked at Saki or cat. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then when I finally got hired to the Tribune, it was on the Kid News section, and then I got traded to the Metro section and was in the Orland Park Bureau. So oh, I was wow. actually really? spent spent a year and a half on 159th Street in the strip yep. mall where the Jiffy Jiffy Lube was. I don't know if it's still there or not. I haven't looked. There is. Um, Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a little bureau there for the Tribune, and uh, we covered the southwest suburbs. And my and we each had different towns. And mine were Orland Park, Orland Hills, the oh, Paloses, yeah. and Tinley. What year was that? It was like ninety-two to ninety-four. Okay. Yeah. Has it changed? Is it like you know, like cool now? I think it has changed. I mean, I was gone a lot of that time, you know. Uh, but um, but yeah, it just feels very conservative, and and uh, I mean, you know, the, and you know, we having children it's uh my daughter you know like friends are drinking you know in their seventh grade oh man i know i thought i still had a few more years and when i heard this i had and i've told her i'm a drug addict i've told her i'm an alcoholic and we talk about it and i you know and so we've had decent talks about it but i just still thought i had a few more years before i had to go deep on it and uh but yeah seventh grade, yeah 
Yeah, no, it happens. Do you see no. your own room that you grew up with? Yes. You grew up in? Yes. No, I wouldn't assume that it was the same bed, but but, no. she, but she's but she's same in your room. childhood room? Wow. Yes. Yeah. So Is we it- got most of the walls and everything came down, but then they came back, you know, so, but yes, exactly. Almost exactly where my bed used to be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is weird, you know, and cool and strange. And, you know, is that where you wrote your first song? Yes. In the same room. Yeah. What was it? It was a Vietnam, uh, like something about prisoners of war or something like that. Yeah. Of course it was your little kid writing a prisoners of war Vietnam song. <laughs> well, cause I used to play it like VFWs and stuff. And, uh, and I, so I was like, you know, 15 years old, hanging out with all these guys with Agent Orange and, and, uh, you know, they got a kick out of me. I was like a little mascot and go in there and go do Bob Dylan songs and stuff. And so, you know. Were you writing poetry before you were writing songs or was did the did the lyrics and the poetry become because you wanted to write and kind of yes. and ask sort of things? Right. Yeah. They kind of came at the same time. I thought, oh, I should start writing poems and stuff. And yeah. And I did that. Yeah. You, you have in there, you say that your mantra as a kid before bed, you would say as a prayer, make me your poet, make me your singer, make me your yes. poet, make me your singer. Yeah. Over and over and over and over. Yeah. What does make me your poet and your singer mean? Or what well, did so, it mean to you at that time? Yeah. So then it was definitely much more of a godly. You wanted to be a, a servant of a higher power. You know, uh, that's what I would say now. But uh, but then it was definitely a very steeped in Catholicism and wanting to be, you know, thought about priesthood. You know, I wanted to do something. You know, I wanted to be heard. I wanted to make a difference. All that was very early. You know, my messianic complex was also very uh, in full bloom then. And then uh, so, yeah, so that's what it was. And I thought and I didn't know even about mantras. Now I do a mantra every morning, but I didn't. You know, now that you said it, I thought, geez, I still do mantras, but it's different now. And uh, so, yeah, that's what it was. I just wanted to do something, you know, I don't know. Important. So when you started writing songs, would you write out the lyrics ahead of time and then put music to them or were they kind of come in at the same time? Generally, that's how it started that way. And then uh, now it's much more of a um, whatever kind of they kind of collide, you know, and then, you know, certain songs like What in the World, uh, that was a lyric and took on many different musical forms until it found a home Uh, because, you know, it's a marriage of sorts, you know, sometimes they just don't make sense together. So now it's much more collaborative between the two. Uh, rarely I have, I would, no, I never do have a whole musical song or a whole lyrical song. Do you usually write when you're sitting down thinking I'm going to write something or do you write like when you're taking a walk and stuff comes in your head and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, the muse is hit. I got to go record this or you sing it into my voicemail or something. Sometimes like it's never. Yeah. So sometimes they come all, all hours, you know, uh, all times a day, but I work every morning, you know, I come, you know, sometimes, you know, before the sun gets up, I'll go, I'm going to spend this week getting up at five and writing. And then I'll do that and then get Willie off to school, come back, finish. And then that's, I'm done for the day. I thought about moving forward on this next album. I thought I about picking a different time to write. Cause I think you get different, you're a different person, you know? So like the morning guy, you know, has this kind of almost abstracty dreamy voice. Uh, I think the, I thought maybe I'll try, you know, try a different time of day, maybe even at night, uh, but I think night and morning guy might be the same. So I was thinking hmm. maybe, you know, maybe afternoon guy, see what, see what he has to say. 
Yeah, it might all just be you, but it would be interesting to figure <laughs> right. it out. I know. Whatever I, you know, whatever, you know, you have to do it. Make it so work. do you have like a sort of a ritual? Like, do you do you like make coffee? Do you uh, you know, do you sit down? Do you have your guitar in your, you know, in your hand when you're you're writing? Do you do you have a pen and paper? Are you sitting at a keyboard? Are you just right here like actually. on the couch? Yeah, right okay. here. I and I type and I don't usually I'll just write. I'll just work on writing whatever and you know on your, com- it, on your computer yeah just type away for hours and you know sit uh and then if you see something like that you like or is oh you usually you get into something and then then i'll go grab a guitar but it's uh, i tried to just get a bunch of i overwrite everything there's a song i have now that i had 84 verses for 84 wow. and yeah and but this what it's very rapid fire so i think there three, 12 made it. So, you know, that's a lot of cutting room floor stuff, you know. You could do like a record store day special release of the 84 verse version of that song. <laughs> and there would just be, you know, like- it wouldn't be that long of a song. I considered it and it would be maybe 12 minutes. But have, have you sung all 84 verses? Uh, I have not. I sing it like once the song started coming, I just didn't feel like it was there. And so then in my head the next morning, I was, it, it was kind of singing it in my head as I was writing it. But the other thing you could do would be, you could have like different versions of the record and album come out yeah. with like different sets of verses. And then, you know, people could sort of like have to collect all the different copies right. of it. So That's they could have idea. all the, so they could have all the verses. Yeah. That, that's not a bad idea. Actually. What's the, what's the song called? It's called Behind the Eight. Like the eight ball? Yes. Got it. Yeah. So, and it moves fast. So we got 84, 84 verses in 12 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. I know. It's like, well, so it's probably six minutes now and it's got, what did I say? Three, maybe 15 verses. Maybe it's got 15, four chords. Yeah. So anyway. When you were writing the book, did you have a similar, like, did you sort of have to display some of your music writing time? Like, did you get up at five in the morning yes. and think, okay, I'm just going to write the book for like, yeah. This morning? And, it, and that was terrible. Talk about the Lincoln hall thing. Writing that book was brutal. Like Heather's like, this book's like killing you. Cause I would just come in and I would just be like, you know, like having to go through that. It was like the worst painful therapy, but I mean, I guess in some ways it was, you know, I could say it was cathartic. I don't think it was, I was just, ha- I just wanted it to be over. Um, but I, I had great editors on it. Uh, there were a lot of chapters that were cut out. It was overwritten a bit, uh, not terribly, but, uh, but there were some things that, um, I Riley left yesterday and I told him one of the, some story and, uh, he's like, why wasn't that in the book? And I was like, yeah, well it was, you know, cause I mean, just, even though something's funny or anecdotal, like it just didn't make any sense. And it, like, and I didn't want to be, be a salacious tell all either. You know, there was a lot of stuff, you know, I wanted, I needed to protect people and, you know, protect, you know, Willie reading it at some point. I mean, writing is overwriting and then you go back through it and then right. you sort of trim it down. And like your, your, your friend, Stephen King, his, his on writing book is actually excellent. And I don't know whether you read that before you did this. Or yeah. consulted no, I didn't. I read it years ago, but yeah, it was great. He had, he had some really good lines in there. Um, Like one, one of the pieces of advice was that sort of, he's like, write the first draft with the door closed and the second draft with the door open, meaning like, don't show stuff to people while you're writing the first draft, but then right. once you sort once you have a first draft you're happy with then you can sort of let in the other voices and and i think the other one was just sort of a mathematical formula which was like oh. draft two is draft one minus ten percent i think 
That's good. And yeah. I don't know, like stuff I've written, it usually loses more than 10% because you just sort of write, you write this stuff and you, and, and if you're writing, you should overwrite because it's better to have it down and then decide, you know, then take the, you know, scalpel to it. Right. Yeah. And, and there was, I had a whole chapter on basketball and like TJ English was like, dude, nobody cares about basketball. I mean, like nobody cares about your feelings on basketball. You know, okay. I do, but it's important to me, but okay. I can see that. You could put bonus chapters on your website or. or yeah, that's, have, that's, yeah, that's good too. Yeah. Have a, have a Patreon or something where if you, right. you know, give, give to, give to Michael McDermott, you get the bonus chapter on basketball and all 84 <laughs> verses of behind the eight. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, the Patreon thing, I don't get, I just couldn't, that's like working for the man, I think, essentially, you know, like having to come up with stuff every, I don't know. So how long did it take you to write the book, by the way? I think maybe two years. Yeah. I mean, from start to finish, I trouble, it was so hard to write it. It was tough to then read it. Like, you know, after you write this chapter and then to go back and I just didn't want to read it. So that's why, fortunately, like Owen King, Stephen's son, he read it and then he had all these fixes and, you know, and, and it was great. It was this document he sent back where he would say, what about Keith Richards? Like, I, I don't know, you know, or talk more about him there or, and it was neat. There would be these little squares that you tap on. And then over here, there'd oh, be nice. These notes and then yeah it was great and yeah, keith uh, richards you talk about how you wanted when you saw him that's what you wanted to do that's right what you but, to do. but he said but what about him like uh, so originally right. it was the outlook yeah so stuff like that so it was great and like real writers and uh so that i mean i couldn't have, it would have been just what a piece of junk it would have been without those guys yeah did you have heather read it when you were done and or, she, or while she, you were doing it no she didn't read it and won't she's like i'm not gonna read it. I was wondering about that because that would be sort of, you know, just, just in general, but it, yeah. in, in your story, it would be hard to sort of have her read it. Yeah. A, an old girlfriend who's in it unnamed. She wrote, she just wrote me, I, you know, she lives uh, down in North Carolina or something, but she said, do I have anything to be worried about? And I, Nope, you're not named. Well, you changed some names. I noticed. Yes, I, did. Uh, I, yeah. I know that I noticed that the your original manager producers who we talked about in my article right. have different, different names. <laughs> right. Right. I won't say them, but I know who they are because right. I've publicly written about them. Yes. Also, you were making out with Joan Baez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So she's the acronym. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So, but when I, it's funny because like I was like sort of assuming it was her and I looked up like your, your, uh, <laughs> the road manager and then I Googled her in multiple personality and, and found a story where she oh, really, about, oh man. So she actually was, was public about having oh. this multiple personality thing like in, like in the last year. Oh, really? We talked about it, but I was like, "Wow, Joan Baez. That's a really <laughs> that was a really crazy story about you." I'm, I won't even say more about it, except you know, if you want to get people to read this book, listeners, there's this amazingly insane story about Joan Baez in it. But she's not referred to as Joan Baez, but you'll know which one it is. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know how those things work, you know, and like. <laughs> what kind of legal uh, vulnerability or exposure I was under. So the, my early managers, uh, yeah, I didn't know. They seem like they might be angry about, they could, you know, I don't think they'd be happy with this, but certainly with the drug use and, and all that. So I just, well, you were, but you were copping to what had happened with, with those guys, with the managers. Cause like, I mean, again, we, 
the thing with the thing with the managers you were sort of copying to what had happened. Oh, yeah but i mean in terms of the first time i did cocaine kind of oh, thing oh right right oh, okay that's the only thing i thought of. oh i forgot about there's it. a documentary yeah. there's these guys making a documentary and i i saw a cut of it and uh and they're both in it and uh it is it is funny and there is you know they are still angry you know and uh so yeah it's it'll it'll i don't know you know you sort of i'm it was like a Darwinian thing where like, I'm going out into the animal kingdom and I wanted like the best people, you know, or the most powerful you know, animals at my yeah. side. And, I don't regret know, that. I, it was the right decision, you know? No. And by, and Brian Koppelman and David Levine have been still with me, you know, like, so like, they're still my best friend. So like, yeah, I made the right decision clearly, you know? Uh, but yeah, it was unfortunate. You know, it's like, you know, it's almost like the Seinfeld thing where, you know, when the guy's becoming a doctor and he breaks up with Elaine afterwards, he's like, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to break up with the people that got us here. You know, uh, you know, it's just kind of, kind of a role you play. So, so you did 620 West Surf, uh, and then I didn't realize until recently, and you had a performance of it, which I only saw the Facebook thing on like after you'd done it, but I didn't realize you had this entire Seattle album that you yeah. recorded that just didn't get released. And so Gethsemane was actually your third album. It was really. Yeah. Yeah. The Seattle record was awesome. The songs weren't as good as the Gethsemane songs, but the band was just great. And we, you know, it was a moment in time, you know, Seattle, 90, early 1992. Like it was like, the place to be and it was just everything was uh but yeah it never came out so we're putting that out and uh, i might do you know we're going to do a gethsemane show at city winery on june 8th um for the 30 year anniversary and so we might do some of those seattle songs wow. yeah so you're, you're going to put out that album though you have the right well, just yeah I'm online and not going to release it like in streaming service i don't know maybe i don't know but, but like you have like the actual like master of that no, no we just, like it's a finished album no, it was never finished. Uh, I don't know where those reels would be now. I even I asked uh, my lawyer at the time, like, where would those reels be? And everyone's like, oh, dude, I have no idea. Like, because, you know, it was on Giant, but then I was switched over to EMI, did the, right. and they the record. But like, did they ship it to New York? Like, I doubt it. Or did it ever even come down from Seattle and Rick Parrish dead? And like, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just, did somebody tape over him? Because when there was a time after that where uh, actual real to real tape was uh, really hard to find, they may have just taped over. I mean, who knows? Do you have like a reference of it somewhere? Like, yes. if you wanted to yeah. listen to that album, you could? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing it now. They're kind of remastering what we had of what. Oh, okay, so well, so the thing you're putting out is still that. It's not like you guys re-recording those songs. Right, right, right. It's just an old source they found, like an ADAT or whatever or something. So on all these albums, you know, from Six Twenty West Surf going through, uh, you know, the new one, like how how involved are you in the instrumentation and the arranging, and has that changed over the years, or is that sort of different from album to album, or do you kind of oversee it usually? Well, the, the early records there was a producer, so it was more we'd sit down and talk about it. But now there's really no producer, really. I mean, the last record, St. Paul's Boulevard, I did it with Stephen Gillis, and but you know, most of it I just do here. I work every day, so things are pretty much all fleshed out before I give it to anybody else. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's in, and, you know, I made a bunch of records from like Willow Springs. That was kind of like the first sober album. It was number one in Europe, like, which was amazing, you know, and, uh, and that was all done in Willow Springs, uh, but with the same equipment and, uh, used Nashville guys. And so it was, uh, that, you know, playing with those guys down there did, definitely changed the way I approached music because I think I, 
I had this very kind of rock attitude when it came to making records, but then doing records in Nashville kind of taught me to get out of the way of it a little bit and just let songs be songs. Like, you know, like, again, it was that pulling up the jacket. I think I was always trying to hide from it for some reason. Let's put more guitars on it or drum loops or horns or, you know, I just kind of kept trying to hide what it was I was trying to say in some way. Are you someone who would say, Hey, look, this is what the baseline should sound like. So I want you yeah. to play this or was it? Yeah. So you, you did do that as opposed to just like, here's a song guitar, put what you want on it. Or something. Right. Depends on if I have a definite idea. I'm not Lenny Kravitz about it, where if you play uh, like any variation that other than what he tells you, you'll be fired. <laughs> I'm not that guy, but you know, so some songs I'll be like, Oh, I have no idea what you should do. Just figure it out. But otherwise I'll be like, Oh, so I was thinking, but also because I have all the instruments here, I usually, mess around with the baseline and figure out what it is or, you know. Right. So the idler, the prophet and a girl called rain, which is the centerpiece of Gethsemane, you wait like five minutes before the drums come in. Was that, <laughs> was that something that you had had in the conception of the song or did that happen as you were recording it? I don't remember. Uh, I'm guessing. I think it was just because it was so long, something should happen here to make it more interesting, you know, five minutes of piano voice, you know, then it's like, yeah, I don't remember. I, I'm guessing, yeah, I don't remember it being a strong idea in my head. I'm guessing somebody else had that idea. Like, oh, maybe the drums could come in. It's cool though. Cause yeah. it's like, it, it really does add to the drama because by then your, your ears are pretty used to it being a song without drums. And then it's kind of like, Oh, okay. And then it kind of opens up and right. And then it goes away you know, again. Thing, you know, <laughs> so, so yeah, I remember you see, I remember seeing you play that in Joliet for that Richard Thompson show. And, and wow. I don't remember whether the album was out yet or not, but I remember you playing a bunch of stuff. Cause I think it was just you solo. It was. And Tom, yeah, and Mike Jordan, that was the last time I saw my mentor, Mike, Mike Jordan, was that night. And, and that's in the book, Memoir, too. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what reminded and, me of that show. And I remember he said, hey, I like that, uh, The Islander. And I was like, oh, The Idler. <laughs> yeah, The Islander, he thought it was. Um, but yeah, I remember that night vividly, just because that was the last time I saw my friend. And the wind swept like revelations with the Idler The prophet Girl called. Has the way that you release albums into you approach kind of financing them, like how has that changed over the years? I mean, obviously the industry has gone through multiple upheavals since you started yeah. doing this. And now it's like like CD, it was CDs for a while. Now it's streaming. People make their music money on touring, but touring's been difficult because of the pandemic. Oh. Like, what's the formula now for you to continue to be able because you've been very prolific? Like, how are yeah. you able to keep doing it? And make yeah, it work? so yeah, it's Kickstarter has been a game changer. You know, that's been amazing. Um, yeah, I was talking to my accountant yesterday for the tech stuff and she's like, so do you make money off the records? And I said, no, you basically give them away. And she's like, how does that even work as a business model? I said, well, you know, cause you do, it's basically a business card. Here's my record. You know, it doesn't cost you a buck. You know, it's a dollar a business card, but you hope to, you know, what you still do sell records at shows. There's impulse buying. Basically, I run a haberdashery with just Michael McDermott T-shirts, hats, books, you know, whatever. That's kind of what sustains you, really. But the but Kickstarter lets you, you know, affords you the ability to make a good sounding record, you know. And uh, but you can't go to that well too often, you know. So um, 
And now, you know, so next year, uh, Heather's going to make a record this year. And uh, so I'm taking a year off, which is kind of nice because I've been at it almost every year since 2016, you know, and uh, but that's the way I work. I already have uh, almost 35 finished songs uh, and and I still have probably eight months before I start thinking about a record. So I don't know what it's going to look like then. You know, I don't know if there's such a thing as oversaturation because everyone's oversaturated with everything. You know, is it, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Um, you know, cause there, you know, there's a fatigue. If I have to see Brandy Carlisle one more time, I'm going to shoot myself, but like, but she's out there doing it like, and that she's, this is her moment. And does she's, is she supposed to just do it as much as she can? And, you know, Heather and I joke every, like, who's the, who's the musical guest on SNL every week we go, uh, it's Brandy Carlisle, you know, cause she's just <laughs> everywhere. That's funny. You know, uh, so I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But, you know, with social media, do you just need to always kind of be around, not yelling too too loud, but always be there? Like, you know, I don't know. A bunch of musicians who I've talked to who basically will not write until they have to like, oh, I need to make a new album. So I better sit down and write. But you're someone who just you write. That's what you yeah. do. You write yeah. and you you write music, you sing, you perform. And it's just what you do every morning. It's like every day. Yeah. breathing for you. So so you're going to accumulate more material than, you know, commercially, maybe you have to. But yeah. on the other hand, like Elvis Costello, he has a lot of albums or Prince has like a lot right. of stuff. And right. at some point it becomes hard to keep track of it. Yes. You know, but then at the same time, you know, when they're done, you're like, oh, I'm so grateful that there's all this stuff that I could go back and, you know, right. I could go back and listen to this album that I didn't listen to so much. And like the music exists and that sort of the beauty of music and that it it music has an immortality that we don't have. And that like, once it exists, it exists. Yeah. So like, there's sort of like your marketplace considerations, but then there's just the creation considerations and like, Hey, you know, I'm glad that uh, maybe there's another Prince album that hasn't come. I mean, I don't know, like with Prince, there seems like they're, they're putting out a lot of stuff, but right. I'm just saying that the, the idea of like creating art and having it there is sort of separate from what actually people can keep up with. Yeah. And it's true. Cause we're all getting bombarded with images and the cacophony of sound and lights and videos, but I am cognizant of it. Cause otherwise I'd put out two albums this year. And I think that would be ridiculous. I'd be like, Oh my God, dude, stop. You know, so I'm going to wait. And it's nice to have a year. Like, so I think, you know, but then I think, do I put out two records next year? Cause then I'll have 84 songs and the, you know, put out 20. You know, that's only a small fraction of what I actually have and pick the 20 best. But for musicians listening, when Willow Springs was coming out, it was a week before the record was coming out. I thought it was a good album. I asked my publicist, dude, no, uh, no interviews, nothing, no free uh, reviews. He's like, I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, and I didn't want to be mad at him. Uh, so I said, give me, give me your, your list. I'm going to write them. I'll, I'll write them personally. I'll write everybody from Greg Cott to the guy doing a blog in Pennsylvania. And so I did. And you'd be amazed at how many people wrote back immediately saying, Oh my God, Michael, I'm, I'm dude. So sorry. It's not, you know, and I, and I wrote a, a well-constructed letter that I was like, I'm not entitled to you, your time to review my record, but I just wanted you to know about it. And that my publicist hasn't heard from you. And they, they were, they wrote back and 
one of the main responses I got was like, Michael, you have no idea how much music is on my desk right now. It's impossible for me to keep up with. Cause I just, uh, you know, so I, I don't remember your publishers writing me. I'll go back and look, but I'll listen to your links here. And da, da, da. so it was save the album. And then that really changed a lot of things for me. That record Willow Springs. Cause I reached out personally and cause you know, they just get bombarded all day long. Good for you. Yeah. People will like, ask me like, can I send you my music and can you write about it? And I'm like, you could send it to me and I'd be happy to hear it. But like for me to write to places and jump through the hoops of getting anyone to respond when all these papers yeah. are so, and magazines, you know, and, and websites as well, but they all, you know, they all have limited numbers of editors and space. And so it's like the, the amount of banging your head against the wall as a writer, just to try to like, if I'm like, Hey man, you know, this Michael McDermott album is great. I would have to, you know, spend like days of, you know, just trying to reach out to people and convince them that, you know, yeah. Oh yeah, you need to dig into your non-existent freelance budget to let me write about it. <laughs> well, so you know, it's, a, it's a totally different landscape and it's, it and it's too bad because it was much more fun when we were just reviewing everything. Right. Because the, so when people ask me that, so you were at the end of the music industry what's different what's the best thing about it now and i go best thing about it now anybody can make a record what's the worst thing about it right now anybody can make a record you know it's it's the best and the worst thing that's ever happened because there used to be gatekeepers warner brothers would put out whatever 30 records a year or whatever every year and so there was a gatekeeper that said uh, maybe next time son and whatever and then you, you but your record would get attention now it's just the the floodgates are open and you know these guys are being overrun with just the amount of music and you know anybody who makes a record on their imac i talked to robin hitchcock and he's got I'm pretty sure it's his own label. And, you know, he had an album that came out last year that's really terrific and uh, Shuffle Mania. And he's got a new album of just like kind of instrumental tracks he did. And now he didn't go through some big label to do it. Right. And you order it on Bandcamp through through his label. You get it from him. He's getting the money, presumably. It's helpful for him that he's got a platform because he's Robin Hitchcock. But there are a lot of people who are on Bandcamp selling their stuff. And for those of us who enjoy music, being able to have those relationships directly with the bands and being able to order from their websites or from Bandcamp or whatever is actually a blessing as opposed to sort of waiting for you know, Sony music to tend to take their year to roll something out. But on the other hand, it's also like the margin of error is if you don't get heard among the noise, then maybe it's hard to sell that record. Yeah, it is. And I, and it, I, um, I saw him at a, at a baggage claim once I was going to say something to him, but I didn't, he didn't look friendly. Um, <laughs> he's very friendly. Is he? He's um, very friendly. You just, yeah. Next time you see him at a baggage claim, just, I saw Brian Wilson at a baggage claim. Did you? Yeah. I we, should, we should just like have us. I should write a story about pe musicians at baggage, <laughs> baggage claims claim. run into. I know. I saw Steve Earle not that long ago. I was just like, mm. uh, but anyway, um, yeah, Bandcamp. I don't know. I know what that is. I don't really understand, uh, you know, a lot how it works, but uh, I hear, I hear about that a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's all a mystery. And uh, so, but you know, things have really never been better. And I just have this little, you know, I get this little room and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's my record company and studio and, you know, it's like, it's nice and it suits me because it's a very isolated existence, which does suit me well. And, uh, but the, the mystery of trying to get it heard is, is, uh, cause you know, I used to always believe that the cream always rises to the top. And I guess on some level, I still believe that it's just getting harder. I think, you know, I, I cause I don't, you don't know what you're missing. You know, there's just too much. 
Right. So I've, another thing I want to ask you about unrelated to this is how you started doing the national anthem at Wrigley and elsewhere. Well, so uh, a character in the book, Mr. Ridiculous, knew, I think Brian, I think it was Brian Garza he knew. And I know Brian. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it, the first I think it's the first time I was supposed to like throw out the first pitch or whatever, but I was up all night and I was nervous and I was shaky and obviously, and uh, so I missed it. And then uh, I, they rescheduled me and I missed it again. And then I was at a game and Brian said, Michael, you know, three strikes and you're out. And I was like, and I finally said, Brian, I I don't, I don't think I don't want to throw out the first pitch. I said, can I do like, can I do the anthem or something? And he was like, Oh, Okay. Oh, I'll ask him. Da, da, da. And so then that was it. That's how it started. Uh, how long ago was that? Jeez. Uh, 97 or no. I oh, think, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was a long time. I was thinking next year, maybe 94. Yeah. Cause I was thinking next year or next year might be 25 years. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, I did. And then I started doing it like that. And then, um, you know, I just wanted to do it. You know, I didn't, I'm not a singer of that caliber that could riff at the end like everybody does you know a lot of those singers do so i just thought like i'll just go the opposite way and finger pick like what would woody guthrie do you know so and you and you took it from three four to four four time oh did i did so now i don't know if you know this heather and i during the, the trump era we did a minor version of it which was really weird. And it sounded Russian, which is funny. Uh, we made it all. They would up. like that. Yeah. And Joe came, Matt came over and said, well, that was different. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was, and it was spooky and it was really cool. Uh, uh, I'll see if Heather has a version of that. I'll send it to you. Uh, but, but you, yeah. but you did, you did switch it from three, four to four, four time. My, my memory of it is because, because usually it's, like oh say can you see two three one two three um and and you do oh say can you see by the i don't know it's i'm see i shouldn't say yeah i don't know if is it true but if it was i think you change i think you change the time signature on it and it's cool and you're not the only one who i've heard do that but yeah but it's, it's like not a waltz when you sing it right okay yeah yeah, I and and I've you know I've done it. Obviously, there's a chapter in the book about the, the Packers game. Um, but yeah, I've done it everywhere. I mean, um, I became like it was like a thing because I think it was the first time somebody had really kind of turned it upside down a little bit. So uh, no, when you and when you and Heather do it together, it's yeah. Awesome, so yeah, yeah, and I yeah. So I think next year will be t- so next year is twenty four. So. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe it was ninety nine. I don't know. It's been a long time. Yeah, I don't I don't time how long you hold that uh, the, the the word free. Yeah, that's no like there's no like twenty five second free. No, those are smokers' lungs. You know, <laughs> former smokers' lungs. Anyway, um, but yeah, so yeah, and I don't like any of that. It should you know it should be a solemn song, you know, and yeah, not something to show off on. I don't know. Is that is that a thrill for you to do? It is. It's a, uh, I always wonder why I do it. Uh, Cause it's just a minute long. If you screw it up, everyone's going to know. It's like, you know, uh, there's a lot of pressure, but it's a rush. It's a, the most exciting one minute of any day, you know, like, cause it's, it's, it's over so fast. You don't even really, how'd it go? You know, cause it was like a quick, like you just avoided a deer on the highway, like, like, Oh my God. 
And then you have to remember what, how you got, how you didn't hit the deer, you know? Well, you, you've probably done it hundreds of times at this point. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever screwed it up? No, but uh, so the one time I almost did a guy from the Cubs, not a player, but somebody in the office was just, you know, we just happened to be sitting there and he goes, you ever forget the lyrics? And I was like, no, no, I haven't. And then I just sat there and we're waiting. People are warming up. And I was like, <laughs> you put that in your head. He did. And I was like, why would you say that to me? And I was like, dude, I need your phone. I need your phone. I need, give me your phone. And I, I had to Google the lyrics <laughs> to get the Ose. I totally blanked on Ose, you know? Wow. Yeah. It was weird. I, you know, I always thought it was Jose Cardinal. So I should have just known it was Jose. I mean, <laughs> but I, I, I panicked. He, he sent me a panic, but no, I haven't. The other Cubs thing I was going to ask you was whether, the Cubs winning the World Series in 2016 messed with your equilibrium. Uh, it didn't because, you know, the Trump trauma happened, what, two days later? Six. Was it six days, really? It was six. Yeah, I was counting. <laughs> it was, okay. it, it, I think, I, I think it was, think I, think, I think it was like two days after the parade. Oh, was it really? Because, I mean, it was, I was in the same room. It felt like, because, yeah, well, depending on when you, because they won after midnight. So that's could be considered the, the a day after then it was the actual game, but uh, it didn't uh, as much as I thought, because yeah, it, it was so quickly forgotten because of the, the Trump thing, you know, being in that same room where I was watching pacing, I walked the whole game in front of the TV, just kept walking around. And then, you know, I thought it was a few nights later, uh, walking around, watching the votes come in and going, Oh my God. This can't be happening. So it was a it was a drag that we really only got to really soak it in for for less than a week, you know, because then like suddenly the big bucket of cold water got splashed in your face, you know. Right. Not you ever go back and rewatch Rounders? I do. It's on a lot, actually. Uh, it's uh, it's fun to see. Um, yeah, it's a great movie, you know, and it's, it's like cult, kind of a cult classic now, really. There, there aren't a lot of people who have had two, the two lead characters in one movie named after them. I know that's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and I remember you talked to Brian and David about that, uh, that I'm much more like the worm character than I was the Michael McDermott. You, which okay. you express in the book as being like, you know, I thought about that and I'm like, I don't want them thinking me <laughs> I'm the worm. I know he's the, he's the idiot, but you know, I mean, based on everything, uh, you know, it was, it was fitting. I it's your duality. You're both. Yeah. The good angel, it's like, the it's, it's like Fight Club. They're the same person, right? And that's good. I'll think of it that way. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've you know made my amends to the boys, and uh, you know, apologize just for causing them so much you know concern and worry and all that. And uh, but we're all good. And you gave them material. Yes, I have. To go through all of that and and you know emerge at the height of your powers uh, with you know this awesome family around you is is yeah. pretty cool. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm very lucky. That's a weird thing to say. You know, I'm lucky. Like it was all not that it, I needed to do that any of it really, but uh, it makes it sweeter. You know, in some ways. Well, I look forward to hearing uh, Heather's album and uh, yeah, your great. album and, uh, you know, the, the performances of City Winery and everywhere else. And uh, that would be great. It's really great to talk to you again. It's great um, to talk to you, Mark. Michael McDermott, thank you so much for being on Carol thank you, Pop. Mark. Thanks, Mark. That's a wrap for episode 78 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Michael McDermott for sharing so much of his life and music with us and for making it through and having so much to offer. You can buy his most recent album, St. Paul's Boulevard, and pre-order his Lost City Seattle album from his website, michael-mcdermott.com. 
The site also is a great resource for his lyrics, tour dates, music, and merch. You can buy a signed copy of his memoir, Scars from Another Life, there, and Amazon also carries the unsigned version. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who has a lot of walls he must climb every week. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.